You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Forget black swans, let's call it black January, at least if you're buying freight. Market to surging, shippers aren't happy about surcharges, free passage of the Suez Canal is no nearer, and the implications of that trade flow blockage are being felt, well, pretty much everywhere. Oh, and we've got a few pretty major non-Red Sea stories for you too, including an intriguing new shipping partnership between Maersk and Hapag Lloyd, some big changes at Air Cargo's top tables, and uproar at one of Europe's leading airports. Joining me today is Peter Sundara Swamikanu, Head of Global Ocean Freight Product at VC Global Logistics, the Low Stars Alex Lanane, and the man who speaks for manufacturers and retailers around the world. It's Global Shippers Forum Director, James Hookham. There's a lot of extra money being demanded out there. And given the heightened sensitivity, and especially given the experiences during COVID, I think it would be a smart move if the shipping lines were a little bit more transparent about where these surcharges come from and why they think they're justified. Hello everybody, I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar Podcast. Housework first, you can follow this podcast wherever you like to listen. You can also subscribe to receive it direct to your inbox at thelodestar.com where you will also find the best supply chain journalism in the world. We've got some great input coming up, but who better to kick things off with than the evergreen story breaker that is Lodestar publisher, Alex Lenane. Alex, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Mike. Alex, we'll be hearing all the latest on Suez, shipper surcharges, and I'm just mentioned there, they're not just to do with the Red Sea. This Gemini tie-up between Maersk and Hapag Lloyd, but let's start with one of the biggest M&A deals we've seen recently. CMA, CGM, the French carrier, with a whole bunch of subsidiaries, including Siva Logistics, is close, we believe at least, to closing its uh, Euro 5 billion purchase of Bellore Logistics. Our very own Ali Pacetti reporting on Lowstar Premium thinks this deal creates uh, a new supply chain powerhouse, every bit as transformative as anything Maersk is doing on the integrator front. Please do tell us more. Yes, well, um, personally, I think CMA has perhaps been less honest than Maersk about turning into an integrator. And I think that's a bit of a problem for them. They're still trying to persuade forwarders that they're neutral, but it is getting more difficult because they keep buying forwarders. It's not just Bloray. CMA, Siva announced they're taking over Wincanton too, which is £765 million in enterprise value. It's a UK logistics company that began life as a milk delivery company, apparently, which I haven't known. And it will certainly boost SEVA operations in the UK. It's, I mean, it's not huge. It will add about 10% of revenues to CMA's logistics businesses. But it may actually not end there. Um, according to Lowstar Premium, which really is where you get all the good stuff, CMA CGM also has Geodis on its radar. So there's that. But I mean, Mike, it's a lot to integrate for them. It's going to be really complex. And there's already a certain amount of disquiet within CMA and SEVA. Insiders say that SEVA is really struggling financially, both pre-COVID and post-COVID. There's been a lot of cost-cutting. By some counts, there's about 100 staff were cut in Latin America last year, another 100 from Asia. And we've also heard from an insider that all the senior leadership now is middle-aged white men, which is sort of disappointing. Slightly off topic, though. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot going on at CMA. 
middle-aged white men, they, they tend to dominate in our industry, especially at conference tables. Uh, again, off topic. Okay, let's run through some of those changes uh, in terms of those executive top seats. What's going on? Who's moving where? Yeah, there is a lot going on in air freight particularly. Again, insiders tell us that CMA, CGMA, cargo has been losing money. And we can't verify that because CMA hides its airline accounts very successfully. But that's said to be one of the reasons why it's ditched its planned 10-year deal with Air France KLM after just one year. But without Air France's expertise, CMA is going to need some real in-house expertise on running an airline. Now, the current CEO, Guillaume Lathalise, who's been there a year and a half, something, he seems to be remaining in place, but really he's an ocean freight guy, which was probably okay when Air France was sort of running it. But I think CMA is now seeing who it's got in-house that knows something about air freight. And, of course, they do have an expert, which is Peter Pensiel, who has been running air freight at SEVA. He's ex-Qatar Airways. He's well known for being an airline man. And they've made him deputy CEO of the airline, which makes some sense. Although maybe he'll become CEO, not sure yet. But that means that his expertise is no longer at SEVA. So Joshua Bowen, who's head of ocean, has had head of air freight as well added to his title. But there's also chat that Bolore may have enough in-house air freight expertise. So there may be some changes there if and when Bolore is integrated. And just briefly, the other reason that CMA was thought to have ditched Air France was that it wanted to focus on America and it couldn't under regulations in partnership with Air France. So we're expecting to see it launch US operations sooner rather than later, where rates are better. But, you know, as everyone knows, the US can be full of pitfalls for Europeans. So that's one to watch. Yeah, definitely one to watch. Yeah, that big Wing Canton deal. It was interesting. Hapag Lloyd's also been invested in the UK, acquiring UK-based ATL haulage for an undisclosed sum. We believe the latter deal will see ATL become Hapag's in-house haulier, but remain an independent company. UK logistics assets still quite interesting for carriers, and carriers continue to grow their non-shipping footprints. Back to air freight, Alex, those financial pressures on operators. Are we seeing any improvement from a carrier's perspective, at least, as we head into Chinese New Year? We'd usually expect a rate bounce, but we've also got that added push from higher shipping rates and longer transit times due to the de facto closure of the Suez Canal, which we'll come to later. Yeah, well, we were expecting to see a rise in rates owing to the Red Sea crisis. The Baltic Air Index actually fell this week. But, I mean, it, it, it depends on what market you're in. But there's a slight rise in China Europe and China US. And, it, yeah, there are like pockets of growth. Zanetta said that rates had risen significantly out of Vietnam, which looks like the garment industry. And various forwarders said they're seeing demand for sea air, but not necessarily air by itself as a result of the Red Sea. And interestingly, there's some talk now about China, Europe via Los Angeles. So that's a whole new route. I think one of the issues in general is that there is quite weak demand in air, which means that this sort of additional extra demand through SEA isn't actually moving the rate needle very much. Some forwarders are reporting that e-commerce is still reasonably buoyant for air freight, keeping at least some of the aircraft busy. But um. Yeah, we're still watching for that rate rise. Where were you putting your bets? Are you any sort of sentiment out there that suggests that we might see a last week rally pre-Chinese New Year in the start of February? 
I mean, I imagine demand will increase before Chinese New Year because it should do. But the air cargo market is weirdly opaque at the moment. Everyone I talk to has a different, you know, view on it. There's some level of expectation around the Red Sea, but it doesn't seem to be properly, obviously coming to the market. It hasn't triggered the change in air that we were all anticipating. So it's all quite hard to predict at the moment, actually. Uh, on Suez, on the Red Sea, we're, con- we're continuing to see Houthi attacks on shipping, including on two Maersk US flag vessels, which, as Lodestar reported, were forced to abandon their US naval convoy. A brief update. Some 22 naval vessels are now patrolling the Red Sea under the auspices of Operation Prosperity Guardian. And the US and the UK have conducted multiple airstrikes on Houthi targets since the campaign began. But as things stand, most container traffic is avoiding the Suez Canal traveling around the Cape. And as you mentioned, there's all sorts of supply chain problems, which we're going to hear a lot more about later on. In terms of spot rates, well, they're flying on front halls and back halls. Just for a flavor, Zanetta has Europe to Asia rates up over 60% since the start of the year. Drury has Shanghai to Rotterdam box rates up around $1,500 per 40 foot. So those rates are now pushing $6,500. Uh, that's just since mid-December. Shanghai LA is up $2,000 per 40 foot from mid-December, and that's now pushing $4,500 in the final week of January. Drury has Shanghai Rotterdam up 186% year-on-year. Shanghai LA is up 110%. Shanghai New-, New York 90%. All of this means huge unanticipated cost increases for shippers, but many are also facing uh, a bunch of surcharges and struggles to manage inventory due to these slower delivery times. And I thought for this episode, we should look at this from a shipper's viewpoint. So I had a chat with James Hookham, director of the Global Shippers Forum. I started by asking him how diversions around the Cape have been playing out for shippers in Europe and beyond in terms of managing their businesses. Well, of course, the actual impact certainly for UK and Northern Europe shippers has only actually just started to manifest itself. Because although we've been reading about the diversions for some weeks, it's taken that time for the ships that were diverted to actually reach their destination ports. So it's only the past week or so that the inventory has actually been arriving. And we're starting to see how this is playing out on its knock-on effects on inland logistics. Can the ports handle it and move it inland? And of course, what the, uh, the, the cost of those diversions might be in the sort of final settlement of invoices and so on. So it's really all just coming home to roost now. What happened, of course, was there was a bit of a lull in ports whilst the diversions were in place. So there were a lot of ships that didn't turn up when they were expected to, but they are on their way and they are are starting to arrive. And assuming nothing else happens to cause further disruption and diversions, we should see a sort of a stability in schedules and arrivals now settle down, albeit It's going to take longer for the goods to get here, but the scheduling and the reliability of the schedules should bed down into the new arrangements. So it should start to get back to the regular pattern that that shippers were expecting. The problem will come, Mike, when the Suez Canal hopefully reopens and hopefully reopens soon, because all of a sudden you're going to have a whole load of vessels that will now take two weeks shorter to reach North Europe and the UK, and they'll be turning up at the same time as all the diverted vessels. So that's when it will get interesting during, again, that that transition back to normal use. So many unknowns out there at the moment. One thing we do know, I guess, James, is 
that we've seen these huge hikes in, in freight costs. And we're not just talking spot rates or higher contract rates uh, that we've been discussing earlier on that, this podcast. It's surcharges too. How, how are your members reacting to these new surcharges? Are they fair, do you think? A lot, a lot of them are calling the Global Shippers Forum. So I'm hearing <laughs> quite a lot about this at the moment. Because as I say, it's about now that those sort of uh, demands are, are now arriving on desks and are needing to be settled. I think there are two points that I would make. First of all, yes, of course, there are going to be higher costs. It's a longer route. It's going to take more fuel. The, the ships are at sea for longer. So yes, of course, there will be additional costs, but one cost that won't be incurred will be the Suez Canal transit fee, and that's several hundred thousand dollars. That's not insignificant. And also there will be some accounting adjustments uh, as well because of a probably a lower emissions trading scheme fee or, or cost because ships could dock in the UK before moving on to the continent of Europe, onto the EU. And that will result in a far lower journey for which they've got to account for their emissions under the EU's emission trading scheme. So what I'm saying is there are a lot of factors in there. It's not just additional costs. There will be some substantial savings that shipping lines will make. I think it would be a really good idea if the shipping lines start actually showing their customers they're working. How did they arrive at these surcharges and, and just lay it out for them rather than just send them the bill? So at the moment, they're getting a bill for all of this lumped together, more or less a fixed sum for even though they're for different things. Yeah. And, and there's peak season surcharges out there. I'm hearing a lot about that from our African members because that's come out of the blue. This is because of an apparent shortage of containers, empty containers in the Far East. And this was way before the Red Sea impacts started to have any effect. So there's a lot of extra money being demanded out there. And given the heightened sensitivity and especially given the experiences during COVID, I think it would be a smart move if the shipping lines were a little bit more transparent about where these surcharges come from and why they think they're justified. I'll just unpack the emissions trading system there, since you, you raised it. This came into force on the 1st of January and, and requires ship owners to pay for EU allowances, EUAs they're called. These correspond with the carbon emissions of their ships calling at EU ports, and then they're passed on to customers via surcharges. We talked on this podcast about this last year, but this was before we had problems at the Suez Canal. Now, the view then was there would be a lot more activity at North African ports because these emissions, these EUAs, are allocated based on the previous non-EU port of call. Obviously, if less traffic is going through the Mediterranean, then your point was there are other options rather than going into the Mediterranean if you want to call at a, a non-EU port, one of them being the UK. Absolutely. And that's what appears to be happening. I mean, that's going to be subject to capacity and availability of berth at, at the UK ports, but there are several of them that could accommodate this, and I'm sure would be anxious to capture as much trade as possible. But that is at least one theoretical calculation. Otherwise, because the ships are leaving the Far East, they're um, coming out of the, the, the uh, Malaccan Straits, uh, out of Singapore, and heading straight for the Cape of Good Hope, and then coming out into the Atlantic, they are not making any intermediate calls. So in theory, the length of the journey that they will have to, if you like, account for in terms of emissions is the whole whack from Singapore to, let's say, Rotterdam or to another EU port. So they will, they will be looking to break that journey at some point to lessen the, the final leg into the EU port, because it's on that the final leg that they will have to account for their carbon emissions. 
Now, this isn't a cash cost. It's not something that you pay you know, on arrival or anything. You have to do some pretty fancy accounting, but it will all catch up with the shipping lines at the end of the year. And they've obviously introduced the surcharges now in order to sort of try and budget for that in advance. But they need to reflect on the level of those surcharges because things have changed because of the, of the Suez Canal closure and the surcharge needs to be reflecting that. So your concern is you're getting a Red Sea surcharge, but you could get an ETS that's built on the last port of call being in Asia rather than somewhere else. Absolutely. And the shipping lines, no doubt, look to recover that from, from customers. So we just need to see, again, a little bit more transparency in how these surcharges are calculated. And the carriers just need to be a little bit more honest with their customers. And if anyone's listening, wondering where the shipping line is in this conversation, these questions have been asked to a number of shipping lines. And they have been invited to come on and comment. And we wait in hope that they will do it some point soon. But it is quite a sensitive topic for many of the carriers at the moment because it's very political what's going on with the Red Sea and who can get through and who can't. So it's probably understandable for now, but hopefully we can bring you someone live at some point soon. James, the bottom lines of shippers, it's not great after COVID, is it? Presumably this will feed into inflation as well because these will be coming back and hitting consumers down the road these higher costs in their supply chains? I think that there is inevitably an inflationary effect of higher shipping costs. We saw that during COVID. It was the first input costs that got affected that eventually led to the uh, general increase in inflation. But I think we do need to separate out in, in assessing this what has actually happened, which is a significant diversion of ships, bringing a lot of stuff into Europe, from what might happen in the future. And a lot of the narrative, a lot of the commentary, I think, is conflating the Red Sea diversions, which are real and here and now, with some of the really scary scenarios which you can imagine about wider conflagration in the Middle East and the, the other geopolitical issues. But my point is, they haven't happened yet. So, you know, we shippers shouldn't be paying for disruption that hasn't yet happened. Let's keep it very clearly separated that there are costs to be looked at and now. And there are things that have not yet happened, which would be really difficult and expensive if they did. But let's wait until they do happen and then take it in our stride then. James, things do keep disrupting supply chains. We talk about black swans, but the last few years alone, it's just, it's an endless series of these huge chaotic disruptions to supply chains. Is this making any of your members rethink how they want to plan their supply chains, especially in terms of long distance supply chains that are more prone to, to this type of geopolitical or weather related or any sort of type of disruption? Yeah, it's, this is supply chain resilience that we're talking about, Mike. And this is now a, a full on issue in ballrooms. And it's obviously necessary and quite legitimate that it happens. And this is the resulting in the questioning and of, of existing supply arrangements, the diversification of sources, resourcing either closer to home or away from particularly sensitive countries. And that's all happening and all going on. But my point is really, yeah, that, that's your contingency against possible future events. I think there's a lot of talk and commentary about how somehow the increase in freight rates that we've seen just recently is, is the beginning of another peak and sort of semi-permanent elevation of freight rates. And what I'm saying is, well, it might be, but some of these things haven't happened yet. So let's not pay for stuff that hasn't yet happened. Do you think all this bad news is maybe leading to talking up the market overly, perhaps? 
Well, there are some suggestions of that, I think. And so my advice to my members is just separate out the here and now, if you like, the microeconomic effects of more expensive deliveries in the next few weeks from the whole range of possible future scenarios that will be affecting your supply chain planning, not for the rest of the year, but into the medium term, the next five years. I mean, we've got all the geopolitical issues. We've got all the transition to net zero to to lay over on on this, as well as the basic performance of economies. We think we've now bottomed out on inflation. Maybe America's got there ahead of the UK and Europe, but in the next two or three years, hopefully we'll start to see a recovery from the, the, the recent economic downturn. That's going to put its own pressure on supply chains again. If consumers think they've, they've got more money than they had before, So, um, I mean, that's good news, that's growth and that's prosperity, but it brings with it its own challenges to supply chain managers and to shippers in in making sure those goods are sourced and getting through on time and at the right price. James Hookham, Director of the Global Shippers Forum. Thanks for sharing your thoughts once more with uh, the Lodestar podcast. Pleasure, Mike, always. Thanks a lot. Alex, as we heard from James, shippers are worried not just about what else might go wrong, but the possibility that freight markets might start being priced on worst case assumptions. And it's not just Red Sea charges, it's ocean ETS surcharges into Europe too. Yes, we've, um, well, my fab colleague, Charlie Bartlett, has been looking at the differences in modal emissions for the low star. Of course, any shift from sea to air is going to trigger more emissions, even with the longer transit times around the Cape. So ships going around the Cape instead of through the Suez Canal will create 27% more emissions per TEU unless they're using smaller, faster ships, which they generally are. So with the different ships for that extra routing, CO2 emissions could rise by as much as 435% on China, Europe, ocean. Now that sounds bad until you look at the air freight. According to ICAO, a sea air route such as Shanghai to Dubai via sea and then by air, say, to Amsterdam, that would be a 4,872% increase in emissions over the normal Suez route. That's really going to screw with shipper emission ambitions, I would say. You mentioned some sea air options and we've also got rail, but there's a few other interesting innovations coming out of this Red Sea crisis, isn't there? There are, yeah. I mean, they're they're quite innovative. It's not it's not going to suit many shippers because of the capacity issues. But Israeli freight marketplace Trucknet Enterprise has teamed up with a UAE company called Pure Trans and several others to provide trucking services between Jebel Ali and Bahrain via Saudi Arabia and Jordan to Israel and Egypt, and there the cargo can continue to Europe and beyond. It's ten days quicker than ocean, they say but around 15 to 20% more expensive. And as I said, with a lot less capacity, but it is an option perhaps for some. Uh, and Hapag's doing something similar as well. It is. It's, it's told customers it's offering inland solutions in Saudi Arabia with land corridors from Jebel Ali and Daman to Jeddah, which will then connect with its sea services. Again, it's not masses of capacity, but it's one option. Okay, great. Thanks, Alex. I put some of the shipment routing options and conundrums to Singapore-based Peter Sundara Swamikanu, who really does have his finger on the pulse. Peter is the head of Global Ocean Freight Product at VC Global Logistics and has previously held senior freight positions at LF Logistics, Agility, Flexport and Maersk. 
I started by asking him how these high rates, new surcharges and longer transit times are hitting customers' supply chains and how VC is helping them manage this fast-changing set of challenges. First of all, it's all about communication, 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 right? So any form of disruptions that you see there, you need to communicate that effectively to your end customers and also internally to your sales and, and colleagues. That's key, right? So we have done that uh, very effectively on my side. Uh, in terms of the impact on the transit time, the impact on costs. So we've done all those things. That's very, very critical for us. So communication is key. Um, obviously, it has hit on our supply chain because now you have to add in, especially the raw materials coming from Europe down to Asia or even to Oceania. You have to now add in 10 to 14 days uh, longer transit time. So therefore, you need to make sure that you have enough sufficient inventory. If you don't have sufficient inventory, make sure you add that into your transit time and uh, make sure you plan accordingly. That's number one. Number two, you also need to provide them full visibility. Which are the vessels that have still been rerouted by a Cape of Good Hope, which are maybe still going under Suez Canal. So, and that visibility has to go at a very, very detailed level in terms of content, even SQ level. Do you have that platform? Thankfully, we do have the platform. We provide that visibility so that the supply chain professionals or the colleagues, they can plan accordingly their inventory. Visibility is very critical at this stage. right? And in terms of cost, yes, it's going to add on the cost. That's why communication is very important. But what is more critical is that even though the carriers are going to implement a cost contingency surcharge, right, it's also important that we don't accept the cost in totality. That's where the procurement chaps come in and you have to do a negotiation with the carriers, especially those carriers you have long-term, long relationship with, right, no partnership with. You don't accept the amount wholeheartedly. So we were lucky in that aspect. We managed to get some uh, reduced conditioning charges, but we, we pay. We still pay but it's not the full amount we have. So it's all depend on your procurement, your collaboration and having a long-term partnership with the carrier. So this is how you manage the current disruption when it comes to longer transit time and surcharges and how you manage the whole process. Again, it's all about communication, communication, communication and close partnership and collaboration with your carriers. How are uh, your guys around the world seeing see the, the, the de facto closure of Suez percolating on the ground across different regions in terms of equipment availability? Is this building to be a serious issue ahead of Chinese New Year in Asia, presumably, but, but then I'm guessing it might rear its head elsewhere after that? Yeah, exactly, mate. Uh, I think the issue is hitting uh, many of us. Uh, that's a given fact. Uh, both the vessels that coming from Europe down to Asia and vice versa, Especially out from China, you require the, the containers and most of these surplus are in the, in the Europe. So definitely we are hit. But the other thing that also many people have forgotten is that what's happening in Australia has an impact on the availability of container. As you know that Australia is basically a very import dominant and they export empties and many of the carriers re-export the empties from Australia back to China. And obviously that empties are now being allocated to the high-yielding trade. So you can see both the rate impact and the strikes in Australia at the moment to the DP world have added on more to the equipment shortages together, right? So yes, definitely there's an issue, especially now before the Chinese New Year, pockets in China, you are continuing to face equipment shortages. So it's very, again, important, not only we provide a proper forecast to the carriers, you also need to give a proper forecast to your equipment availability that's needed. It is a problem. It will grow even further. We continue to see rate C issues and also... On, on our part here in, in Asia, the Oceania DP world issue, both is going to add on to more of these equipment shortage in the coming months.
Are you seeing people turn into alternatives to Ocean? Which I know Ocean's your your strong point in your business, but are people asking you for air cargo options or sea air options? Obviously, sea air Dubai is the obvious and traditional location, but with with there are other alternatives. There's Korea. I mean, Lodestar's reporting that some people are using sea air options into Europe via the US from Asia. What sort of questions are you being asked? Okay, so so basically, we we looked at this option, but we are looking at options of the real option from China into Europe. That was our option we're looking for, right? Because that option is the rates are lower than air freight because the transit time better than ocean. But obviously, the rates are much more higher than the ocean freight. So that's the option that we're looking at. But it all depends on how urgent your cargo is. So if you look at whether you see air or rail options to Europe, it all depends on how urgent your cargo has to go. Otherwise, if the cargo is not urgent, you can live with an additional of 14 10 to 14 days via transit, let you do it. Otherwise, if your cargo is urgent, especially the retails or electronics, then you can look at the CA option or even the rail option. The latest report from Lawstar where they are using the CA into Europe via USA reminds me of what happened during the COVID. Uh, if you recall, right, when the Suez Canal was blocked because of the Evergreen, right, one of the carriers together with Logistic Arm, OCL, what they did was amazing, right? They make use of the China to Europe rail they discharge the cargo in Hamburg or one of the major ports and then connect the, the cargo onto the transatlantic service into US East Coast. That's what they did. So you can see that, right, the carriers or even the providers will become very, very innovative in the way to overcome circumstances. So I'm not surprised that someone have come out with these CA options into Europe via USA. It's, it's possible. What is interesting about this disruption is that it helps us to think outside the box and look at various uh, ways of moving a cargo. And I think COVID has helped us to come out with these solutions. And then that's the reason why, I do not, in my personal view, I do not think many of us are panicking. It is not as severe as COVID. We are not panicking, but we have many options we have tried out in COVID and we are trying to implement them again. So I think it's quite natural to come out with these solutions. All depends on whether you can take in the cost, whether the product is reliable, and more importantly, how urgent is your cargo to make use of alternative modes besides ocean freight. Peter, obviously it depends when all this stops, but if, say, we had a resolution relatively soon, what, what sort of whiplash would you expect as all this plays out as the year progresses and we see those supply chain knots play out around the world? How will this impact the US and Europe, for example, in the coming weeks? Okay, first thing, I'd like to discuss and address the issue on the freight level, right? So, as you know, when, when most of us are going into a long-term contract, especially for the US and also Europe, we already started it, right? So you can see that the carriers are not, especially to Europe, they're very reluctant to offer us a long-term deal. They want us to go on a spot rate. And my biggest concern is that when you ever want to try a long-term deal, they're going to use the current high spot rates and negotiate as a benchmark, right? So that's going to be number one in terms of the rate level. So you can expect your long-term contract in the coming months, if they, uh, the carriers are about to give it to you, it's going to be very, very high. So your benchmark is already very high. That's number one. Number two, in terms of the US, uh, my concern is the following, right? You have the Red Sea Suez Canal issue. You also have the Panama Canal issue. So some of these shippers are now trying to look at to bring the cargo to East Coast. They are now using the US West Coast. And from there, they do a transloading, whether by rail or by truck. If this trend continues to increase, you'll see the US West Coast will face some kind of congestion because I don't believe they have the ability to expand their services uh, quickly or their productivity quickly in order to absorb more and more cargoes coming to the West Coast finally going to the East Coast. So my concern is that when these trends start increased, you can see congestion, delay of vessels being birthing in, in West Coast because the people are trying to look at more routes, more alternative routes, 
going to the East Coast. So that's my concern with the US. As far as Europe is concerned, we are unlike COVID, right? COVID was basically, and also the evergreen issue, basically stopped Suez Canal. But here you see the vessels are still moving. You only need to add in 10 to 14 days. So I do not see a major concern in terms of transit and service to Europe, but I feel there's a concern in terms of cargoes going via US West Coast because now your cargoes designated for US West Coast going there and also those cargoes that's moving to the East Coast, they're also trying to route it via the West Coast. That is my major concern at the moment. Just getting a sort of a chronology to this then, just uh, I know you're going to TPM in, in early March over at Long Beach and the Lodestar is going to be reporting from TPM as, as well. Are we going to be there just in time for all this congestion to start? <laughs> Very good question, mate. I, it depends, right, uh, how strong the volume is going to be after Chinese New Year, right? Uh, it all depends. And obviously, you know, after Chinese New Year, the holiday finishes about 17, the factories will take another two weeks for them to ramp up, right? So it all depends on how quickly the volume is going to come through. By the time we are in TPM, it's my personal view, I hope, that there won't be much congestion because we do have a tour down the <laughs> and then long which I don't want to get affected, right? So I, I do not think that congestion will be severe during that period because the factories will take some time in China to wrap up after they come from a long Chinese New Year holiday. Peter, presumably if this doesn't stop and it spreads and we see this sort of domino effect that we've just discussed there and it carries on, does this start to become like those early months of COVID where all this sort of started building up? And will we see rates start plateauing at much higher levels than we have now or lower levels than we have, have now, but, but at far higher levels than the recent low period that we've had on those ocean freight rates? That's a good question, mate. Okay, when, when we look at COVID, we try to compare against COVID, especially the early days. One of the critical factors we need to take into consideration is COVID has an impact on labor. That's critical because the ports, the main people fell sick, so the port didn't have enough workers, no enough truckers. So it affected the physical infrastructure port and landside operations. But in current situation, we don't have that. What we're seeing now is long transit time, right? That's critical. Now, of course, vessels have been um, sliding, there's blank sailings, but that's quite normal. But you still see there's no severe port congestion as per se, unless there's a strike like in DP World in Australia. Otherwise, many of the ports are still operating as what is it, all right? So if you want to compare both, they are under two different circumstances. But your question is very valid, right? If this situation continues, Right, we continue to uh, move the cargo via Cape of Good Hope. What's going to happen is definitely the rates level are going to go up. That's for sure. And you have issues in container availability. Having said that, my question is this. Yes, I agree that when the vessels delay and the blank sailings, you are basically a reduction in effective capacity. But what happened to the new vessels that are coming in? We hear this year is going to be an oversupply compared to demand. So what are these new vessels? Where are they going to be employed? Especially those to Asia, Europe, the 3,000 TUs. Where are they going to be deployed? So that's my question. So even though your effective capacity is going to be reduced through the blank sailings, vessels sl uh, sliding, but what are the carriers going to do regarding the new capacity that's coming in? Are they holding it back so that the spot rate will be in a reasonable level so they can use that to benchmark and use and, and get a higher contractor rates? Or will they be releasing this as and when is needed? So that's my concern. So in a nutshell, two things, right? If the problem carry-ons, you will definitely see rates level going up. You will see huge issues in terms of container availability, but I hope that the new capacity comes in to tighten and try to come in and try to smoothen that area. But it all depends on how the cares are going to play that game. So we've still got excess supply and it just depends on line of strategy essentially, and that will dictate where those rates go. Exactly, mate.
And finally, Peter, we're going to unpack some of the details about this new Gemini cooperation partnership between Hypag Lloyd and Maersk a little bit later in this podcast. But just from your point of view, is this new arrangement, as, as far as we know of what it will involve from the carriers themselves, do you think it's going to be attractive to the market? And I say that particularly uh, in relation to this bold claim that they will be able to deliver 90% schedule reliability when they start operations in a year from now. Good, good question. I'm a very positive person, right? Mike, let's look at the positive side of these Gemini alliances. First of all, I believe that it is a significant shift in container shipping industry because it demonstrates the industry's adaptability and ongoing search for efficiency and sustainability. Let's give credit to that. That's number one. However, I believe that it's going to have a profound impact on the global trade routes, service quality, and the competitive dynamics within the industry. So that, that, that part, I think we need to make it very clear, right? It's, it's a positive outcome, but there are some concerns, all right? This claim, bold claim of delivering 90% of schedule reliability depends on many things, all right? They are talking about this hub and scope approach. First of all, when you want to have a hub and scope approach, when you have a designated hub, it must be served by feeders network, the feeder network must be reliable. There must be reliable connections. You must be able to manage any form of potential operation disruptions. If you don't, if these two are not in place, then it's very difficult to achieve the 90% schedule reliability. That is my concern at the moment. So they need to make sure that there's the dedicated hub they're putting in, operated by feeder operations, which are very reliable, and manage to mitigate any form of operation disruption they're going to face. Otherwise, it's very difficult to claim that you're going to be 90% uh, scary reliability, especially with the hub and scope approach. But I, I give due credit to both uh, MERS and HUPAC in that aspect because I think what they're trying to do is trying to put in a very higher benchmark they can achieve. Hopefully, they have a very good network and able to maintain any form of disruptions. But let's see how things go. Uh, to me, at the moment, my biggest concern is that the product and the service they're going to offer because it's going to change the entire supply chain because they're not going to call all the ports. They're going to be hub and scope. How it's going to impact my transit time and my supply chain configuration is a major concern. That, that's my view at the moment. I, I've been chatting to a few people, Peter, and they were telling me that just because the Gemini cooperation is saying it's going to aim for 90% schedule reliability, when you think of the top carriers coming in around 50, maxing out at about 70% global schedule reliability at the moment, even by saying they're going to aim to up that bar quite significantly, that's a game changer in the sense that all the carriers are going to have to come up with some sort of uh, response before Gemini cooperation even starts operating a year from now. Do you agree that it, just that aspiration is, is super important in terms of how that plays out in terms of strategy for other carriers and alliances? Exactly, mate. I think, I think that is a very good opportunity. That's why I'm telling you, it's, it's a basically a, a game changer, right? They are setting up high standards for other alliances, other carriers to follow through. And I think that is the positivity about it. But at the end of the day, whether they're going to achieve, they have depend on other factors like feeder operations, and other operation challenges they're getting. So they need to manage that in order to achieve this. If they achieve at the end of the day, 80, 85, I think that's a major, major breakthrough as far as the alliance is concerned. When, when was the last time in your experience that we've had 90% schedule reliability from any carrier? I'm, I'm stretching my own mind back. I can't remember. Uh, neither, neither could I, mate. Is neither it pre-data? <laughs> yeah, could be, could be, mate. <laughs> Peter Zandara Swamakanu, Head of Global Ocean Freight Product at VC Global Logistics. Thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Alex, we heard that Gemini, a new partnership between Maersk and Hapag Lloyd, is a game changer, apparently. The partners plan to bring some 290 ships into the new setup with a combined capacity of 3.4 million TU. It's due to start in February next year. Once Maersk's 2M alliance has finished, they plan to operate 26 mainline services complemented by a network of dedicated regional shuttles, one for the US Gulf, 13 in Asia, four in the Middle East, 14 in Europe. This all caused everyone unawares, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And I have to admit, I hate being caught unawares because um, it's quite hard being in daily news. But um, yeah, it did mostly because Maersk has been consistently saying it would go alone. It's not only us journalists that were caught unawares. It's also thrown a spanner in the works for the Alliance. So we'll wait and see what um, one HMM and Yang Ming will do. Hapag Lloyd was previously, well, is currently part of the Alliance, but won't be next year. The most radical thing about Gemini, or at least that Gemini is promising, as I discussed with Peter, is this promise of 90% schedule reliability, which is is quite some benchmark or target considering where schedule reliability is now. From my interviews with shippers and forwarders, obviously everyone is hoping for better reliability than they currently have. And it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. Obviously, Lodestar will be reporting developments every step of the way. Okay, finally. One of your just-breaking stories, Alex. The Dutch cargo community is up in arms at the apparent refusal of Schiphol Airport to work with it to ensure cargo retains capacity as well as the airport's stature and importance to the country. What's causing all this angst? Well, you say it's a just-breaking story. I've actually been working on it for absolutely weeks. Um, the Dutch cargo community are very, very proud of the way that cargo is treated in the Netherlands. It's all about connectivity and it's it's really a, a major uh, thing for a small country, which is quite nicely placed in Europe. But they think that the new Dutch and the new ship or cargo department is not taking cargo seriously and it's kowtowing to what the passengers want, as well as being very concerned about local people, noise, that sort of thing, which is not unreasonable. But the cargo people are, are, are very concerned that basically they're going to sort of be forced out by low-cost airlines, I think. And whereas Schiphol in the past would always defend cargo, and in fact, it's it's always been seen as an example of one of the best airports for cargo, they say that under the sort of new management, that's being deteriorated. And there are some weird things happening there. For example, there's talk about cutting airside handlers from five to three. And as anyone who knows handlers will know, they've invested a lot of money in this. So to be suddenly told perhaps that they will have to close down airside will cause an awful lot of uh, concerns. It's such a Dutch story because the um, they're such proud cargo people and they really want their airport to be the leading cargo airport in Europe. Yeah, and it's been losing that status gradually over what, the last decade or more, really, hasn't it? Squeezed out those cargo operators. Uh, Royal Flora Holland, which imports 20% of its flowers, mostly from Kenya and Ethiopia, already has six flights a day into Liège. Will we see more shippers fleeing Amsterdam further hurting its air cargo hub status? Well, that's what the shippers' bodies and the general Dutch stakeholders are, are saying is that, I mean, now the flowers are coming in through Liège, through Maastricht, through Brussels, Ostend, I mean, all over the place. 
which for flower importers is, well, it, I mean, it's way more complicated for them and it's contributing to a lot of traffic on the roads. And the flower importers had great relations at Schiphol with the customs and so on. So now their, their supply chains are coming up a lot more complicated. And again, this is flowers is such a source of Dutch pride. And to see them being diminished in Amsterdam, I think is very upsetting for a lot of the people there. But other shippers are, are saying that too, that they're because slots are in such sort of high demand and there are so few of them, that people are just automatically moving over to other airports. And while Schiphol says this is not the case, I hasten to add, and they say that there are more distribution centres than ever being built, so on, in Amsterdam, the shippers don't necessarily agree and they think that cargo will leave the Netherlands and that, for them, is, is brutal. Alex Lenane, Lodestar Publisher, thanks for sharing your insights today. Very welcome. Nice to speak to you. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.